Hey everyone, welcome to The Restless Ones. I'm Jonathan Strickland. As always, my focus is on exploring the intersection of technology and business by having conversations with the most forward-thinking leaders. Throughout my career, I've covered everything from massive parallel processing to advanced robotics, but what truly inspires me are the stories of innovation and transformation. I'd like to think that every episode of The Restless Ones is a special one, but today I've got something really special. I got to sit down with Philippa Layton-Jones, Senior Vice President of the Trust with The Wall Street Journal, and Matt Griffin, CEO of the 311 Institute, at Mobile World Congress 2023 in Las Vegas, Nevada. Philippa and Matt both served as judges for the second T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, and both have a lot of insight into and passion about technology in general and the power of connectivity in particular. The conversation was a lively one, and as you'll hear, Philippa and Matt are both generous with their time and expertise. So now I'm going to throw it to Jonathan of the past to lead us into a discussion about tech trends, connectivity, and the restless leaders who are changing the world. Welcome to The Restless Ones. I'm Jonathan Strickland. We're here at Mobile World Congress 2023, and it's a very special episode because my guests today are both amazing people. With me, I've got Philippa Layton-Jones. Philippa, welcome to The Restless Thank Ones. Thank you very much for having me here. We've already bonded over our shared love of English literature, which we both slaved over when we were students. Certainly did. Very long time ago now, for me, <laughs> at least. In and the olden days. In the yeah. olden days when we read books and there was no internet. Pre-internet days. Right. Shortly after literature itself had been invented, if I'm not That's mistaken. Right. And we have Matt Griffin here. We're going to be talking with you a lot about the far-off future yep. days because you're a prognosticator, so that's really exciting. Well, that's it. I don't know about prognosticator. People call me a procrastinator <laughs> and a futurist. That's it. But, you know, that'll be a new one on me. Well, and before we jump in, I always love to get to know my guests a little better. Philippa, I would love to hear more about your journey into covering tech and whether or not that was something you had a burning desire to do or you kind of followed that path through other courses and how it brought you to where you are today. Great question. The year was 1997, I think, and I had just graduated in English literature and I knew I wanted to be a journalist. And that's a very hard gig to get, right? Mm. It was London, mid-90s, pre-internet days. So there were probably like fewer reporting jobs as well. You had to fight pretty hard. But I managed to get myself into an organization and the gig was covering tech. Now, I wasn't really a technologist at heart. So that was a steep learning curve, mm -hmm. a kind of a critical juncture, I would say, in, in a career, but also super interesting at the time, right? Because it was when folks were grappling with what is this thing? Like, what is tech, first of all? And what is the internet? We maybe had one email address across our organization. And so that was an interesting journey to see that kind of rapid adoption. My beat specifically was technology in finance. So across investment banking, asset management, those kind of like like arcane things, which were also not terribly well covered back in the day. It was quite sort of a trade. And you saw really some big corporate names trying to come to terms with how was this technology going to reshape their business? Mm -hmm. And you saw the early adopters who were kind of like visionary. And you saw the detractors, right? 
I remember one, won't name him, but one very notable chief executive of one very big information company who said, this isn't going to change the way we do things. We carry on the way we're doing. And they were left scrambling to catch up for a long time. But one thing that was kind of interesting in that beat were the folks who were almost too visionary and had ideas before the market was ready to Mm. kind of adopt those ideas. And we saw that a lot with stock exchanges, for example, and like the emergence of these electronic communications networks and matching engines and like really quite kind of thorny stuff, but where ideas were excellent and now they're kind of like old school, but at the time, the world just wasn't ready to adopt them. It Mm. was too much too soon because the pace was faltering, I guess. And so that took me on a journey of covering tech, which now obviously underpins everything we do. There is kind of no beat that doesn't cover tech in a way. So that's the sort of potted history. Yeah, and it's fascinating too, because you got in just a couple of years before the infamous dot-com crash. For sure. Which was transformational in many, many ways. And then we saw the rebuilding process where we defined what later we would come to call Web 2.0. You also starting right when Steve Jobs is coming back to Apple. like It was a truly pivotal moment in tech and in business just as you were getting started. Matt, I'm curious, how did you first get interested in technology? What drew you to the world of tech? So I kind of reversed into the world of tech. My background is I'm a marine biologist and oceanographer by training. I did a bunch of work with the UNHCR around coral reefs and coral reef preservation and so on and so forth, but then ended up falling into a job with EMC. So Mm -hmm. then ran global sales, basically organizations like IBM and Atos. I headed up IBM's what we call PSNS business, so public safety and national security business. And when you're having a look at the five eyes, which are typically, you know, the GCHQs, the CIAs and everything else, they want to understand not what's here now not what's just coming, but they want to understand technology from a kind of N plus two, N plus three perspective. Mm -hmm. So I set up a variety of different sort of what we call blue sky forums, basically within these organizations. Mm -hmm. In 2006, 2007, I saw over 250,000 people in the technology industry then being made redundant because you had the technology giants like IBM who had kind of seen this thing called cloud but didn't really understand what it was. It was fundamentally disruptive to their business, so they didn't really like it. So they didn't really want to put their arms around it in the first place, which is a kind of a cultural thing. And if you really want to actually understand how you can protect people's jobs in the future, then you need to understand technology. You Mm -hmm. need to understand what it is, why it is, what it's capable of. You need to understand what the trajectory looks like. Mm And then you need to be able to kind of try to plot all of that out and say, in the future, we think technology will be able to do X. Generative AI at the moment is a superb example of Armageddon going wrong. And then you have to plot that back to say, well, if technology in the future can do this, and these are the problems, the societal and business issues that we actually see, here are some of the solutions to that. Mm -hmm. So now I cross over 600 emerging technologies across every sector up to 50 years out. And... uh, we do get crazy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. When I used to do a, an episode at the end of each year where I would do a predictions episode of yeah. what would happen the next year, I would hold myself accountable. And at the end of that following year, I would do a follow-up to say, how did I do? Uh-huh. You would not hire me, Matt. I was... You hit right I, bad. Oh, Gosh, if it were baseball, I would have been benched years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't everyone's hit rate bad on those things, though? I think so, especially when you're looking at, at near term, just because 
you never really know what the next disruptive thing is going to be, which may not even be tech related, yeah. right? It could just be a change in leadership. It could be a change in strategy. Those are the sort of things that can be really disruptive that are very difficult yeah. to predict. Well, I mean, business models, geopolitics. If you have a look at COVID, you know, mm -hmm. we had COVID, then we ended up with the Ukraine war, then we ended up with supply chain crunches, mm -hmm. high rates of inflation and so on and so forth, cost of living problems and issues. And what we typically find is, ironically, when we have a look against this backdrop of sort of geopolitics and environmentalism and everything else, technology is actually quite straightforward mm -hmm. to predict because it follows common paths. You can see the ecosystems developing and building. You can see the problems that people are trying to solve. You can see the investor communities piling into particular things and so on and so forth. So actually, ironically, it's the rest of the stuff that starts confusing the world. Let's talk a little bit about what we're seeing currently, specifically in the mobile space, since we're here at Mobile World Congress. And one of the things I would love to talk about are some of the things that people are spotting right now as kind of an emerging directions, trends, however you want to define it in the space. And then, Philip, I would love to get your opinion about that. Like, sort of, are we seeing the industry coalesce around anything in particular? I think there is a kind of coalescence of two things that I think are super important and we should spend some time talking about. One is obviously AI, right? Is mm -hmm. what's happening with Gen AI? Is it a real thing? We were talking about this a little bit earlier. You know, a couple of years ago, we were talking about NFTs. We were all desperately trying to launch something with NFTs. Then we were thinking about the metaverse and then maybe we're not thinking about the metaverse quite so much. We were thinking about AR and VR and maybe we've kind of like scaled back a little bit on that now too. Is it time to slow down on AI? One has to be very measured about the consequences of AI. Gen AI obviously is only one facet of it. And I think thinking through the unintended consequences of technology, right? What is the end game for this? Right. Even one year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, as ChatGPT and OpenAI is sort of like really burst onto the scene, where do we go next with that? What are the real world examples? And then one other thing is there's sustainability, which I think we have to be thinking about this. And I know we'll come on to this a little bit when we talk about the awards maybe, but if we're not putting mobile technology to work to help with things like smart cities and dealing with the outcome of climate change, of climate disasters, we're missing a trick, right? I mean, I know that the tech industry and the mobile industry specifically has put sustainability really front and center of its considerations. How big are our tech stacks? How much carbon are we using to sort of keep our businesses afloat? But I think it's much, much more than that. And it's about how do we create the solutions of the future, but also sell them in. Like we're seeing a lot of rowing back of commitments at a government level, at an organizational level. And I think that that is, without wanting to sort of like get in the soapbox here, that is worrying. Mm -hmm. And I think that it is up to the technologists of the world who have those solutions to get on the front foot. So those are the themes that are really emerging for me. Well, to your point about sustainability and climate change, conservation, all of those things, I'm of two minds of the subject. I know a lot of people who talk about us engineering our way out of a problem, which I think is part of it. But to me, that's almost like saying this is a future Jonathan problem, which I do in my personal life. And future Jonathan hates Jonathan of today because Jonathan of today could have taken care it of isn't it. isn't taking response. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you've already done the damage, remember? Right, it's exactly. But I think there's incredible potential. I mean, we're talking about a global population where a massive number of us are carrying around an incredibly powerful computer that's constantly connected and that there are ways of leveraging that that could make a significant difference if we engineer the right approaches to it. It's almost like it's an untapped resource and we're starting to see some businesses find ways to tap into it in a very specific way that benefits their business, right? But to me, that also means that there's the 
potential of harnessing that power in ways that can have massive, positive global impact. It just requires the right infrastructure, the right approach, the right governance to make certain it's run properly. Yeah. Matt, I'm also curious if you have seen anything that, you know, is sparking your interest. Well, I mean, if you have a look at MWC, for example, there are no particular trends that actually stand out, Mm. which I think is actually interesting. So a lot of people sort of say, well, maybe that's a cop-out. But we've got things like smart cities. We've got Internet of Things trends. We've got the impact of 5G, for example, based on mobility. Mm -hmm. You know, there are conversations about security and so on and so forth, deployment, network optimization. But actually, for me, basically, the fact that we don't really have any trends that are particularly standing out shows to me that you've actually got a very, very broad Mm. ecosystem And actually, when you have a look at fundamentally what 5G is, 5G is a general purpose technology. It is a technology that can be used very broadly and can be innovated on top of to improve all kinds of different sectors for lots of different kinds of use cases and everything else. And I think when you actually have a look at the diversification of all these different trends, it's really starting to show that people have gone from the, let's try to find the specific killer applications for 5G. Mm-hmm. You know, and we had Metaverse and AR and VR gaming, for example. And people are now starting to think, well, okay, now what do we really do? How do we really mm-hmm. start pushing this into the enterprise? How do we start deploying this? How do we actually practically do this? But when we actually look sort of further out, There's obviously conversations around 6G. We've Mm. already seen the US FCC starting to sell 7G spectrum as well. We're already starting to eye quantum communications. Then we've obviously got space-based satellite systems as well, and T-Mobile have obviously teamed up with SpaceX. So there's actually a lot happening just in that communications space. When we actually have a look at 5G today, we're topping out at, say, what, 1.5, maybe 2.5 gigasecond. But in the labs, when we have a look at 6G, we're already starting to talk about 16 gigasecond. We're talking about pushing to terabits per second. Mm. So that's interesting. And then when we talk about quantum technologies, we're talking about more unhackable sort of systems and everything else. You mentioned from a user perspective, people are looking for, you know, what does this accessibility do for me? Right. Now, let's say we bring generative artificial intelligence into it. Fundamentally, when we have a look at things like 5G... They give us access to stuff. Mm -hmm. One of the things that excites me about accessibility using these different technologies is accessibility to knowledge. Mm -hmm. Now, that's different. So today, basically, we've got about 3.5 billion people on the planet connected in one way or another. So they have access to the internet. They have access to education and ed tech systems and so on and so forth. However, when you have a look at the internet today, what we all have access to is we have access to information. Now, when you start overlaying these large language models, these systems understand natural language to such a high degree that they have an IQ of 155. Now, what that means is they're able to take all of this raw data, this information, and start mixing the domains. So now that we start generating knowledge. So now we're starting to move from a global society that had access to information across these networks to a global society that has access to expertise and knowledge. And when you really start thinking about how 5G, for example, actually really enables people to have access to these increasingly powerful cloud-based technologies, whatever they happen to be, that's one of the most exciting things that I see as I travel around. You know, what happens when people have access to knowledge and access to systems that can help them accelerate their learning sixfold? when you can use 
generative artificial intelligence with children to boost their grades by 30% for almost free. When we have corporates that are taking juniors in a whole variety of different domains and subjects and topics and boosting them to a 201 level within three weeks. So all of a sudden what we have is we have the network layer that gives us access to new things, to do new things. Mm -hmm. But from a societal perspective, access to knowledge, and then that's just going to keep driving the 5G ecosystem even more because access to knowledge means that we now have access to new ways to solve the problems that we actually have. So it's that virtuous loop. Which is nice to run into in tech. Yeah. <laughs> often we're talking about the alternative, but I love that vision of the future. I love the thought of using generative AI to perhaps capture that long promised but never delivered goal of being able to give students specific approaches to learning that are catered to them. That's something that technology has been promising for years. So we are now at the point where every single person, not just child, but every single adult has access to a one-on-one -on -one tutor that has a thousand times more general knowledge in its head than anyone on the planet, where you can ask it anything. You can ask it to teach you to become a 5G network engineer, or you can get it to teach you about, you know, in my daughter's case, habitats and that sort of stuff. You've now got access to a one-on-one -on -one tutor. Both my parents are teachers, so oh, I, this speaks directly to yeah. me because you're talking exactly the experience they would have where if they had the ability to focus on fewer students, they could see those students flourish yeah. much more effectively. And when you're looking at things like class size, where I come from in Georgia, class size could get quite large yeah. even in you know primary school. So that's a very powerful use case. But it's also a combination of technologies. You know, everyone mm -hmm. looks at, say, generative AI and say, oh, well, we can train children and adults in new ways using it. Fundamentally, you need the connectivity beneath it. Sure. Which is where that general purpose connectivity actually really makes sense. I mean, without that connectivity layer... You haven't got it. Right. I right. just want to interject here, it's just mm. as we're thinking about this in the news industry, mm -hmm. obviously, and we at the Wall Street Journal and Dow Jones have been using AI for decades now in terms of, you know, uncovering data points within company announcements and to analyze large amounts of data. But I think we are cautious. I would say that the work our journalists do is deeply researched on a very human level. Mm -hmm. And if we've got AI reading vast amounts of data that we know isn't researched to the same degree, we've got to be very, very careful in the kinds of news that emerges over the next sure. few years and decades, right? That actually the data are in, it's all about data in, data out, as we all know, and that we preserve the governance over that data in. And something I think that will be a continuing theme for the news industry is how is AI reshaping our business and mm. our world and the kinds of news that people are reading? Because we know that young people are kind of pretty platform agnostic on where their news comes from. We've got mm. to make sure that we kind of reinforce those standards of journalism that makes journalism journalism, right? Not right. something that can be created by a machine. So just to put the kind of like devil's advocate hat on there. Oh, certainly. The other thing, Matt, that you mentioned, and Philip, I'm sure you have insight on this as well, the concept of connectivity being sort of that underlying foundation that facilitates innovation in other ways. That's really what this show is all about. I mean, we talk about that a lot on The Restless Ones, about the idea of how we're in a realm of connectivity that is enabling specifically business solutions on a level that was 
impossible before. To me, that's really exciting. And again, it really boils down to the fact that we have this connectivity technology that is enabling that. Yeah. yeah. And I think we see that moving at such pace. And I hope we'll come on to this and talk about some of the awards that we've been looking at recently. But connectivity, empowering and facilitating a whole new ways of working has been so game-changing, so powerful. Taking things to places you would never have been able to previously do things. I used to be a reporter in Africa, and where we were promised that it had excellent connectivity, it really didn't. Mm -hmm. It was kind of like cables that would get soaked by the rain, and it was all powered by a hydroelectric dam that wasn't always working. Mm -hmm. And you see, when you're stripped of that connectivity, how disabling it is even on a personal level, but at a business level, and all of the things that we've come to rely on now, you're hamstrung, right? If it's not there, we kind of do take it for granted. And we are ever more ambitious in what we want to do. And we're ever more geographically dispersed in what we want to do. And you only have to have, I mean, at the simplest level, Wi-Fi not working at your hotel before you realize your own personal work world comes crumbling down. So I think, you know, a lot of what we all come on to talk about, I hope, you'll see the underpinnings of connectivity. Even in one year, it has changed the way businesses are doing so many things. I think that's a great way for us to kind of talk a little bit about the unconventional awards. You both are judges for this year's unconventional yep. awards. And there are various categories that we wanted to chat about. Yeah. So this is the second year of the Unconventional Awards. We were both judges last year as well. And the quality of the entries this year was astonishingly high. There was a huge surge in entries as well. So I think that is testament to corporations and individuals within those corporations really cottoning on to, you can make a real change. Mm -hmm. You can be innovative. But what we were seeing was real change happening at an organizational and an industry level. An area that we were looking at was innovation in community. And Matt, yeah. I was wondering if there was anything that kind of stood out to you. So there were. So, I mean, we had three and sort of going in no particular order. We had the city of Bellevue uh, mm -hmm. who were using 5G and V2X, so vehicle to X mm -hmm. technology to try to reduce road traffic accidents, which when you have a look at the number of people that are killed on American roads basically every year, I mean, there's what, 800,000. We still don't see cars that are driving themselves yet. We're at category three. Category five is probably still two to three years away. But actually, for me, when you have a look at the city of Bellevue, it was really good to see a city that was actually moving from how do we connect vehicles and transportation and things that are mobile, basically, to city infrastructure to do X, Y, and Z, mm -hmm. to how do we actually bring this really down to the ground to actually reduce fatalities, mm -hmm. you know, typically pedestrian fatalities. So that one really stood out. Then we had the Hampton Valley Forge Volunteer Fire Department. You have this really hardworking volunteer fire department, and they said, what we've done is we've used 5G to really improve the reliability and the speed, basically, of our networks and our network services and our communications. And when you have a look at what they do, basically, they're in life-saving situations incredibly regularly. Mm -hmm. And just by having access to reliable and fast communications networks and systems and everything else means that on the one hand, they can get situational intelligence faster. So what's going on? What's happening? Who's in the building? What part of the buildings are catching fire? How do we deal with it? So in the heat of battle, they've got more information that they can use very quickly to expedite people from a building or whatever it happens to be. 
But the reason basically why I sort of felt a little bit guilty is because actually the fire services should have reliable mm-hmm. networks anyway. Mm-hmm. I sort of felt like on the one hand, you know, they've done very, very well. But I'm sort of also there thinking you should just have this stuff as standard. Right. But they took the ball by the horns, they ran with it, they actually sort of picked the ball up by themselves and they actually did this by themselves as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where they deserve a round of applause. But then the other one that sort of stood out to me was Chicago Public Schools. Now, in the UK, I do a lot of work basically with homeless charities and communities. And in Chicago schools case, they have about 13,000 students at any one time. And about 1,000 of those students really are are truant. But some of the problems that those students have go much deeper than that. You know, there's a lot of absenteeism because the parents basically are, shall we say, unfit or Mm -hmm. unwell to manage sort of particular situations and Mm -hmm. so on and so forth. And with the public schools district in Chicago, they ended up providing laptops and connectivity to a thousand students that are truant. Mm-hmm. What it's doing is it was enabling those people basically who were on the streets, who had problems at home, it gave them a lifeline into the Chicago public schools community. Mm-hmm. And now we're seeing more of them actually going back to school. And when you have a look at the importance of education on people's future lives, it's life changing. Yeah. So as an innovation, it might sound fairly just straightforward. But actually, it's probably one of the most important kinds of innovation that we have because it is changing people's lives as well as the lives of any kids that they have. It's Mm -hmm. lifting them up in a way basically that maybe a digital twin can't. So this was obviously the community awards, but it was really good to see individuals within the community identifying the problems to solve. Mm -hmm. And then technology is part of how they solved that. Right. But obviously not the whole picture, but it's part of how it was solved. I think Matt makes excellent points there. And this is a recurring common theme throughout these awards. A lot of what we've seen with these awards has been, and certainly a big theme of last year's was, these are life-changing things mm. that are happening. These are people who think, how can we use connectivity to genuinely make the lives better of, you know, big recurring theme. We see healthcare, cities, Mm. infrastructure, education, Mm. and the digital divide, like so much of the digital divide, which is so important. And if we don't get that right, what's the point? Because we're just kind of like creating for creating's sake. So innovation in employee enablement was one of the categories. I was curious, Philippa, was there any particular use case that stood out to you as being particularly interesting in that regard? Yeah. One of the other entries we saw was Southland, which is a construction firm. They had had huge growth in their workforce, and yet they couldn't tell when somebody was injured on the job. And so they launched a 5G-enabled network to just figure out when they've gone from a 50 to 250-man team to a 2,000-man team or woman team, how do you check? People are checking in and checking out a job so no one's got injured on that job. Small thing, but it's how their business will survive. So I just wanted to pick up on that point of unconventional. We've, I think we've always said this. We don't want to see innovation for innovation's sake. We want to see things that are actually moving the dial in meaningful ways. But also impact. That's sure. the thing. And I suppose basically as judges, when we're actually evaluating the entries that we have in, one of the criteria is impact. Mm-hmm. And when you have a look at the impact that some of these initiatives you know, actually have, in some cases, it's entire communities, mm-hmm. 
it's staggering. I mean, you know, what happens especially when you are able to use technology to, I say, level up, but actually to improve the lives of an entire community? Mm-hmm. When we start feeding that through to the local government perspective, you end up with people being better educated, being able to get better jobs, getting richer, which starts solving some of the wealth and poverty divides, basically, that we actually see. As they get better off, they have access to better healthcare, better education, they've got access to better food, you know, all these kinds of different things. So when we actually have a look at some of these entries, basically from an impact perspective, certainly one of the things I look at is how does this fundamentally change somebody's future prospects? Right. And then if you change the prospects of one individual, they then start passing it on as well. Mm -hmm. So when we have a look at Chicago public schools, for example, you haven't just got a thousand children who are now being included in the community in a new way to sort of lift them up. But as they start getting older and older, no doubt they will start passing that on to other people. Mm -hmm. So now you have this massive network effect of people doing good. But it all stems really from one or two individuals basically within an organization saying we've got access to these tools and these support networks and these resources. Should we do A or should we do B? But actually then doing whatever that happens to be. I love the insight into the judging process because I often find myself Mm. guilty of focusing in on the micro of an element. And I have to remind myself to step back and look at bigger picture. Yeah. And the judging process is pretty robust, right? We get Mm -hmm. into like a lot of debate and it takes quite a while (laughs) to get when we do that call. It's like, okay, who's the winner here? Um, And we all obviously have very different perspectives, but Mm. we all kind of are guided by that principle of like, does it change lives at scale. And is it a case study that can be used at scale as well? I think that that's something that's so important is like, does this just work for this corporation or this industry? Mm -hmm. Or can you scale it? Is it something that by being called out, you've got other folks saying, okay, we could use that. You know, there's going to be other voluntary fire services that go, we could do that. This is how we change the way we do our work. So yeah, just to sort of give you a little bit of extra insight there on that judging process and how it all comes together and the underpinnings of it, which is that it's got to be changing things and potential to change things at huge scale. But also, you know, to Philippa's point, when we first set about basically with the awards, one of the things that we were actually thinking of is, on the one hand, we need to raise up and promote the good innovations, should we mm-hmm. say, the good initiatives. Sure. But actually, by putting some of these organizations on a pedestal, quite rightly, like the Hampton Valley Forge Volunteer Fire Department, it actually means that people in other departments around the US can say, actually, if they did it, we can do it. Right. But also, it now means that these people could technically phone them up and say, we've heard that you did this. Mm-hmm. What were the benefits? What were the results? How did you do it? So now, basically, you have one innovation. It's essentially, you know, using an analogy, the fire department can kind of hold the torch up. And mm-hmm. then once they've actually completed these initiatives, they can pass that torch on and say, right, now it's your turn to use this to do X, Y, and Z, to get better outcomes on whatever it happens to be, to save more lives. So it's that ripple effect. I like the torch uh, analogy, although I will remind <laughs> yeah. you that the firefighters are meant to put, put them, them out. out. <laughs> well, it's, it's, I didn't say it was lit, you know, that's it. And you could be talking yeah. about a flashlight, which is exactly, what we Exactly, yeah, that's to. it, yeah. Yes. Maybe that's the modern equivalent. Yeah. Well, we have two more categories of unconventional awards to kind of chat about. The next one up is the innovation and customer experience. I'm curious if there were any standouts in that category as well. So for me, actually, emphasis really stood up. Now, again, this might sound slightly strange, but what emphasis were doing was they were using 5G combined with artificial intelligence to help improve tennis players' 
play, improve their form and everything else. So what they were doing is they were using things like you know, cameras, artificial intelligence and biometrics to automatically monitor a tennis player's form mm-hmm. and then feedback to that tennis player and say, if you did this, basically you'd actually be faster, you'd improve your scores, et cetera, et cetera. Now, again, you know, this is sort of one of those on the surface, you look at it and you think, okay, it just applies to tennis players. However, the way they actually created it means that it could actually be scaled out to little leagues everywhere and everything else. It can be applied basically not just to tennis, but to every single sport out there. Mm -hmm. And when we actually have a look at the impact of these sort of technologies on health and wellness, being able to, for example, start putting equipment alongside an athletics track where that equipment now monitors how someone is running. And you can say, well, actually, you're running slightly skew whiff. Your gait is slightly off, which means your hip's going to be out and you're going to end up with a bad back. So if you start adjusting your running posture to this, you can not only get faster, but you can avoid injury mm-hmm. is actually important. And especially, you know, when we have a look at the importance of health and wellness in today's society, we could have a podcast on that alone. Sure. Yeah. It's very similar to the education status, too, yeah. where you're talking about using technology to give personalized health and wellness information to the individual. Well, that's a fantastic example. And then our last one, of course, is the innovation in industry. Philippa, I believe you wanted to have a talk about that. This was such a strong category. We saw some amazing endeavors here. One that I would call out in particular is Boston Children's Hospital. So this is an absolute clinical leader in pediatric care recognized global leader, doing some of the most important work in the industry. However, the hospital's Wi-Fi network was causing significant challenges. Mm. So you are trying to take care of your patients and you can only enter their clinical information in a fixed desktop in the patient's room. Clinicians want to be able to connect with each other, use their mobile devices, connect their own devices into the hospital's network. And so that's what they did. They implemented, uh, again, using T-Mobile technology, they put in a layer of connectivity that meant they were now able to enter clinical information on the fly. They were able to connect with more kind of like bring your own devices and really make a game-changing impact on the way they were caring for their patients and also recording data. And that, again, is a now we have a case study that can be rolled out at scale to other hospitals, which we kind of know a lot of these hospitals are based on this kind of legacy IT infrastructure that is holding a lot of clinical work back. You've got the real talent and the real science and R&D happening at that clinical level and the technology is holding them back. So Boston Children's Hospital is one that I would really call out there as something that is again, changing lives at a kind of life or death level. And a huge challenge as well from a technological standpoint, because you're talking specifically about healthcare, obviously, you're talking about very sensitive information. Privacy, security, right. everything. So, yeah. so designing your system so that you have this ability to connect in and have that interconnectivity while also ensuring that safety, it is not a trivial matter. So that's I right. see how that's a huge endeavor. And to see an organization go through and start to ideate and solve those problems that can then be ported to other organizations. Well, I mean, it is. It's like this osmosis effect. You know, mm. something happens basically within one organization and all the benefits start leaking out to all the other organizations in the ecosystem, in the industry, whatever it happens to be. And I think basically with all of the awards that we've actually awarded, all of the innovations and initiatives we actually looked at, when you actually really start scaling this up, the improvement to people's lives... Mm is staggering. But then also, you know, impacts on the environment from a sustainability perspective. I applaud everybody that actually put their ideas forward because they all 
made a massive Herculean effort, not just to do something, but to actually implement it and really carry through. Yeah. Look, these are important awards, I think, because it just shows possibility. It yeah. really helps drive that knowledge and awareness of what's being done at, mm. at this sort of innovative level and shows that like you put something in a sandbox and real change can happen. The possible. So before I can let you go, I do have to ask you one more thing. It is just the simple question. And Philippa, I'll start with you. Our show is called The Restless Ones. So what does restless mean to you? I think it is do not be afraid of calling things out when you think that something can be done better, right? And making the change that will actually have this sort of far-reaching effect. Think through the long-term consequences. Is this idea actually going to change the course of our company, of lives, of society, of news or whatever it might be, right? Because you've got to have that long-term view. You've got to have good governance, whether that's at an individual level or at a kind of like the people you're bringing along with you. Mm -hmm. And you've got to think through the unintended consequences. But I think if you keep that long-term view and you are restless and curious and you think about the wider impact of what you're doing, that will make your idea successful. That's a great answer. Matt? For me, basically being restless is all about never stopping to try to find problems and never stopping to try and find solutions. Mm. And that's exactly basically what a lot of the people who've entered have actually done. They've looked for problems, they've looked for solutions, generally they found solutions, carry on. Yeah, a lot of the people I've had on this show, their background is in engineering, and I love talking to engineers because they just see the world as a series of problems waiting to be solved, and they're constantly thinking of the solutions. Yeah. Barack Obama has a great line on that, right? He goes, there are like hundreds of people in your organization who will find the problems and spend ages diagnosing yep. the problems. The people who fix the problems are the ones that you want to hang on to. Absolutely. And I think that that is a lot of being restless is spotting something and then going and fixing it. Fantastic. Philippa, Matt, thank you for joining The thank Restless you. Ones. This thank has you. been a great conversation. Thank you for having us. Thanks again to Philippa Leighton-Jones and Matt Griffin for joining me on The Restless Ones. I'm so glad we were able to sit down and talk about technology's capacity to make real, substantial change in business, in communities, and in people's lives. And it was also good to remind ourselves that it's beneficial sometimes to step back and ask really big questions and to consider all the possibilities and potential consequences of our decisions. The stuff that, you know, leaders do every single day. There's a lot going on this year at Mobile World Congress. The use cases that we talk about are just a small slice of the innovation going on all over the world, all made possible by connectivity. And while we've been having some conversations about business and technology for four seasons on The Restless Ones, I can't help but think that we're just on the precipice of an astonishing future where we see potential become reality. Thanks for listening to The Restless Ones. We've got more than 50 episodes focusing on business leaders and tech in the archives, so be sure to check those out. And tune in for more conversations this season about how leaders are leveraging tech to create amazing new opportunities. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Strickland. <laughs>